Well, let's turn to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. Galatians 1, we're going to read the first five verses. 1 through 5. Verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful to be able to gather together in your holy name and in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and to read the scriptures together and to hear the scriptures together and to think about the scriptures together, Lord, and to learn from you. Because truly, Lord, it is you who have something to say and not us. And we come to hear from you, Lord. I pray that you would prepare all of our hearts right now. You would open our hearts and remove distractions and the things in our hearts that keep us from understanding and from seeing what you have to say. Lord, help us to hang upon your words, realizing that we live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Lord, teach us by your Holy Spirit, we pray today, the truth. And we pray this for your glory and in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. The title of this morning's sermon is Not-So-Customary Salutation. A Not-So-Customary Salutation. The first five verses that we read here taken together, constitute the formal introduction of the letter to Galatians. And I say the formal introduction to the letter of Galatians because Paul, when he writes this letter, in the first five verses, he follows the customary form of salutation in the ancient Roman world. So if you dig up old letters from Paul's day, and you see how they write their salutations, you're going you're gonna to see that Paul's just following the custom. So-and-so, the author, to so-and-so, the recipient, greetings. That's the basic ancient Greco-Roman salutation. It's different than ours, right? We would say, dear so-and-so, recipient, and then we would write our letter, and then at the end we'd say, sincerely, or from author, right? But in the ancient world, it was first author, then recipient, then greetings. Follows this customary form, formal introduction to the letter. However, there is as much formalism in this introduction and in this fiery writing this introduction as there was ice in Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. There is no here. Even though Paul is following the custom, nothing is simply empty custom, nothing is just customarily customary thoughtless words because he's writing it because he has to write it. 
There is no formalism here. Although he employs the custom, it is elevated by the Spirit. Every word is full of purposefulness and substance from the very beginning of the letter to the Galatians. See, you can use the forms of the day. You can use the customs of the day, and we all do it. But God keep us from just using those forms in a formalistic kind of way. May everything that we do be thoughtful. Every word that we say, every word that we write, everything that we do, even if we follow the custom, may we learn from the apostles that they elevated these things into reality and substance because these were men of thoughtfulness and men of the Spirit. Luther highlights this in his commentary on Galatians. I quote, Paul is so inflamed here with zeal. He's talking about the beginning. Paul is so inflamed here with zeal that he carry till he come to the matter itself. But forthwith, in the very title, he bursteth out and uttereth what he hath in his heart. Every word, note, every word handles the argument of this epistle. I hope this is what you're going to see when, when we go through the book of Galatians, and especially this morning. Everything Paul writes, even his greeting, as Luther says, is dealing with the argument of the epistle to the Galatians. And I hope we see that here when we look at these words. You know, it's sometimes said that the letter of of, uh, Paul to the Galatians is so urgent, Paul blasts off into his content in his matter in verse 6. So a lot of times it will be that after the formal introduction, Paul omits the typical thanksgiving that he has for the churches and for the saints. If you read his other letters, you'll find a completely different tone. And after the introduction, he'll say, I thank my God for you every time I remember you for your faith and for your love that you have for all the saints. And in Galatians, it's completely, completely omitted. Notice after verse 5, there's no thanksgiving. He jumps right into, I am amazed. And so it's often said that this letter is so urgent that in verse 6, Paul launches into his, his argument and skips the whole thanksgiving part. And while there's truth to that, he does skip the whole Thanksgiving part, and that is significant, and that does show urgency. It needs to be seen that Paul blasts off into his matter from verse 1, not from verse 6. J.B. Lightfoot called the name Paul has no sooner passed from his lips that he at once launches into the matter. The very beginning of this epistle, all the way to the end, there's an un in focus, there is a unity of thought, of purpose, and of argument from verse 1 all the way to chapter 6, verse 18. Of all letters in the New Testament, few have a unity of purpose and an unbroken focus like Galatians. Galatians perhaps is only rivaled by the book of Hebrews and by First John. Those two, those two Other books also have a unity of purpose, unity of argument, unity of focus all the way through. Whereas other letters, say like Romans or 1 Corinthians, they deal with a whole bunch of different things. You know, Paul tackles one issue, then another issue, then a third issue, then a fourth issue. But in Galatians, Hebrews, and 1 John, it's one issue from the beginning to the end without any break whatsoever. This is due to the urgency of the matter in the book of Galatians. You've got to think of the circumstances to understand this letter. The circumstances are basically as follows, and we'll talk more about this as we go on. Paul had planted churches in the province of Galatia. And after his first missionary journey, after he planted those churches, 
A group of Pharisees, Acts 15 gives us the background. A group of Pharisees, these are Jewish people, zealous for the law, who it says believe that, believes that Jesus is the Messiah. They believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They believe he died on the cross. They believe he rose from the dead. But these Pharisees came in the wake of the Apostle Paul's preaching to the churches that he had planted, and they began to, to undermine the Apostle Paul's work. And they began to say, Friends, I think it's great that Paul has introduced you to Jesus the Messiah, but his message was defective. Paul actually uh, is, is out of line, and his apostleship needs to be questioned, because he's not teaching that you have to, in order to be saved, you have to, in order to become a child of Abraham and inherit the kingdom of God, you have to keep the law. You have to be circumcised and become a Jew like all the other Jews and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. And Paul omitted that. Paul taught that it was through faith that a, a man or a woman became a descendant of Abraham. It was through faith, not by the works of the law, that a person was saved from their sins and an inheritor of the kingdom of God. And so these Pharisees came along and said, Paul's actually defective. Paul's got it wrong. And they were undermining his apostleship and his gospel. From be- so serious is this that from beginning to end of Galatians, he's taken up with this matter. And thus we find two major defenses of Paul throughout Galatians consistently. He defends his apostleship and he defends his gospel. And those two things, of course, are linked. For example, compare just in this introduction how he defends his apostleship and also how he defends the gospel of grace. He tells us how it's by grace and through the death of Christ that we are rescued from the present evil age. Remember, there's no word that's just formalism. Every word matters. And if you flip to the last chapter, chapter 6, look at the last two verses and you'll find the same two strands or the same two defenses, the two things that he's defending. We find it here again. 6, 17, and 18. In 17, he defends his apostleship. From now on, let no one cause me trouble. For I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. This is written after his first missionary journey. And for those of you who are familiar with the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul, you can read about it in Acts. He was stoned to death on his first missionary journey. First time out, first time out to sea and he is stoned to death. And so when Paul writes this, it's not late on in his ministry, it's early on, and he says, I'm already bearing the persecution marks of Jesus. When Jesus says, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. Well, I've been hated. I bear in me the marks of Jesus. So he defends his apostleship in verse 7. Look at verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. There is no formalism here, even if he follows a customary form. That's how he ends a letter that's dealing with grace. The letter is about grace. The whole letter is about the gospel of grace and that we're saved not by the works of the law but through grace. And so here he ends with this wish, this prayer, that may grace be with you. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So right from the beginning all the way to the last word, with one focus, his apostleship, and his gospel. Let's turn back to chapter 1. While the form, as I said, is for the ancient world, 
the content of this introduction in the first five verses is actually uncustomary for Paul. If you compare all of his other introductions, this one alone is unique. And this morning we're going to look at three noticeable differences about this introduction of Paul's from all of his other introductions and all of his other letters. And these three noticeable differences will shed light upon this letter of Paul to the Galatians. These differences are because of what's going on in Galatia. Galatia. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Three uncustomary differences in this intro of Paul's. First, while it is normal for Paul to introduce himself as an apostle and to, and to claim and to state that his apostleship is by the will of God, only here does Paul say and emphasize that his apostleship is not from man, neither by man. So while it's normal for him to say, I'm apostle from God, it is uncustomary for him to say here and emphasize he's an apostle not a man. Look with me in verse 1 and 2. You'll notice there's a parenthesis, right? Many translations will have it in brackets. Some will have it hyphenated. Paul an apostle, hyphen. Paul an apostle, bracket. Not sent from man, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, bracket or hyphen. Take out that parenthesis and notice the brevity of this introduction. Take out the parenthesis. Paul an apostle, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. That's brief, isn't it? That's, that itself is unique. No other introduction of Paul's is so brief. The parenthesis is clearly the prominent thing that Paul is emphasizing in the opening statement. And within that parenthesis, the emphasis lies upon the fact that his apostleship is not of man. That is the preeminent thing. Notice that before he says his apostleship is from God and Christ, he states that his apostleship is not from man, nor through man. So he gives, he gives not of man first mention. He gives by God the Father second mention. Not of man. It's also emphasized by the repetition. He doesn't just say, I'm an apostle not of man, but of God. He says, not from man, neither through man. There's an emphasis in verse 1 in the parenthesis that he is highlighting, my apostleship is not from man. Of course, as Frederick Rendell comments, the bare mention of his office as an apostle involved a distinct protest against the slanders that had been, the slanders that had been circulated in regard to his office in person. So even if Paul were just to say, Paul an apostle, right there, there's a protest. Right there, he's defending himself. Right there, he's entering into the argument just by saying he's an apostle. But Paul seeks to go further than just state that he is an apostle. Paul does not want to merely prove that he is an apostle, but Paul seeks to prove that his apostleship is from God and not from man. Where he got his apostleship is the critical thing here. See, if Paul is not an apostle, of course he's a fraud. If he's not an apostle, then he can be dismissed and all that he taught about grace and all that he taught about faith can be dismissed. If Paul is an apostle, but an apostle from men, then he must submit to men. 
If he's an apostle from men, then they can come and say, Paul, you're out of line. You were commissioned by men, and now your commissioners are coming and telling you, you're out of line. But if Paul is an apostle sent from God, then others must submit to him as unto God. And others, by hearing his words, are in fact hearing the word of God. So he would have authority to speak and be heard if he's an apostle from God. You see, Paul was not commissioned apostle by Ananias. When he was blind there for three days, Ananias came to him. Ananias prayed for him. The, the blinders came off. Ananias was the one who was there to help Paul in his conversion to facilitate his understanding of salvation. Paul was neither commissioned by the brothers at Antioch. Remember years later when Paul was at Antioch with other uh, brothers, the Lord said, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas for the work that I've appointed them. And they laid their hands on them and they prayed for them and they sent them out to preach the gospel. And so people might say, aha, there you go. He was commissioned by men and so he needs to submit to men. He needs to hear from his commissioners that he's wrong. But none of those things are right. He was not commissioned by Ananias. He was not commissioned through Antioch. He was commissioned through God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And only through God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his mind, that was the reason that he was an apostle. You'll remember in Acts 26, when Paul is speaking before King Agrippa, and he describes his Damascus experience. And you can turn with me there to Acts chapter 26. Acts on the road to Damascus verse 15 the scene is on the road to Damascus the light has shone all around him he's fallen to the earth the voice speaks to him Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? it's hard for you to kick against the goads Verse 15 of Acts 26. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus persecuting. And note what the Lord said to him on the road to Damascus. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only of the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God so they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. And then Paul says in the next two verses, I was not disobedient to that commission, but went out and preached. You see, right from the very beginning, Paul was commissioned by Jesus. It was that encounter that he knew he was called and that he was sent by Christ as an apostle and as a witness. Not of man, nor through man. What man was there to tell Paul that? What man was there to pass along that message to him? There was no man. In fact, he even said, I saw no man. It was the Lord Jesus. The negation, not of man, in Galatians. Let's turn back there. The negation sets the tone 
of the entire letter. It sets the polemical tone of the letter of the two Galatians, not of man. And this not, this negation, appears again and again throughout the book of Galatians. And while I could point to many places, I'd just like to briefly give a sampling. Notice the knots of Galatians. Look at chapter 1, verse 7, which is really not another gospel. There's a lot of knots in Galatians. Not of man. And the gospel that these guys are presenting to you is not another gospel. Look at verse 10. Am I seeking the favor of men or of God? It's rhetorical. I am not seeking the favor of men. I am not seeking to please men. If I were still trying to please men, I would what? I would not be a sponsor of Christ. Verse 11, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is what? Not according to man. This negation, once again. Chapter 2, verse 16. We're skipping over a lot of other knots. Chapter 2, verse 16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is what? Not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. A strong negation, not by the works of the law. Look at verse 20 and 21 of chapter 2. I have been crucified with Christ. It is not I who live any longer, but Christ that lives in me. It is not me anymore. Not me. Verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness came through the lie, Christ died for naught. Christ died for nothing. I don't nullify, I do not nullify the grace of God. 3.12, skipping over lots more knots. The law is not of faith. He has to tell them this because they think it is. The law is not of faith. Verse 18, for if the inheritance is based on law, it is what? It is not based on promise anymore. He has to tell them this because they don't understand Verse 28, there is not Jew nor Greek, there is no slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. There's not distinctions anymore in Christ Jesus. He has to tell them this because they don't realize it. Chapter 4, verse 30, skipping over more. Chapter 4, verse 30, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. We're not bond children of the bondwoman. Cast out the bondwoman and her son. Chapter 5, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will not benefit you. Verse 8. This persuasion, these people who are trying to draw you away, where does that come from? Not from Him who has called you. It's not from God. Where is it from if it's not from God? Chapter 6, verse 12, skipping over more. Those who desire to make a good show in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted. 
to be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. The last knot we'll look at this morning. But may it never be, may it not be, that I would boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You see, all of these knots that we've been looking at and the other knots we haven't looked at, all can be traced back to the first knot in Galatians 1, verse 1. My gospel is not of man, but of God. Because if it was of man, all these other knots would be true. And any religion that comes and says it is true, what Paul says is not true, that religion is of man and not of God. A man is justified by the works of the law and not through faith. That is of man and not of God. God forbid that I should boast. May I not boast but in the cross. But if you say, no, let us boast in other things besides the cross, that religion is not of God, but of man. All the knots come back to the knot of chapter 1. And when Paul, in chapter 1, verse 1, points to the source of his apostleship, he is not simply trying to get people to listen to him. He's drawing attention to the nature of his apostleship and his message, that the nature of his apostleship and his message is divine and it is not human in its essence and in its soul. This is not a human thing that's going on here. This is a God thing that's going on here. What, you might say, well, what's a human thing? What would it be to have a human thing? Well, the Bible talks about the wisdom of man versus the wisdom of God. He's saying, my apostleship and my gospel is not of man. It's not of the wisdom of man. It's of God. It's in its essence and soul of the wisdom of man. It's not of the way of man. My ways are not your ways, says the Lord. But it is of the way of God. His apostleship and his message is not of the thoughts of, of man. My thoughts are not your thoughts. And as higher as the heavens are over the earth, so are my thoughts and my ways above your thoughts and ways of man. Paul's apostleship and message was of the thoughts of God and not of the thoughts and message was of the righteousness of God and not of the righteousness of man. And most importantly, or perhaps the thing that just kind of caps all these other things, Paul's apostleship was for the glory of God and not for the glory of man. The wisdom of man, the way of man, the thoughts of man, the righteousness of man is all ultimately for the glory of man. But the opposite things of God ultimately are for the glory of God. As Paul says in Romans 11, what is of God is through God and it is to God. Remember that in Romans 11? Of God is through God and to God. And whatever is of man, dear friends, is through man and it is to man and for man's glory. This is a theme that we have to catch, we have to see as it's going to appear over and over and over again. 
in the book of Galatians. So Paul's not just saying, I'm an apostle too, listen to me. He's saying, you've got to get to the bottom of the issue, the soul of it, the core of it, the heart of it. Is it of God or is it of man? What is it? What is this all for? What is all about? Now all of this is further brought out in Galatians 1.1. Turn with me there again. All of this is further brought out by Paul mentioning the, on the other hand apostleship is through Jesus Christ and God the Father and he says here he qualifies or modifies God the Father. God the Father who raised him from and he underlines this aspect of the Father when he's saying that my apostleship is the Father not the Father who created the world of course Paul believes but he underscores the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead, and it's the Father who raised Jesus from the dead that is the Father who commissioned me in my apostleship. This here is the only explicit mention of the resurrection in Galatians. So nowhere else in the book of Galatians is the resurrection explicitly mentioned. You see, Paul is not arguing in the book of Galatians that Jesus rose from the dead. The Galatians, even the Pharisees who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, believed that Jesus raised from the dead. Here's the issue. It's not that they didn't believe that Jesus raised from the dead. That these Galatians and their Pharisee troublers were missing the significance and the meaning of the resurrection. And that is everywhere in the book of Galatians. So even though it's only explicitly mentioned here, the significance and meaning of the resurrection is to be found all over the, the book of Galatians. Simply put, resurrection proves the divine and not the human nature of Christianity, doesn't it? Resurrection is a supernatural thing. What are we rising again from? There's a lot of songs and poetry and people can talk about rising again from defeat, right? I failed that time, but I'm going to rise again. I'm going to make my comeback. What are we rising again from when we're talking about resurrection? Rising from the dead. And this is beyond human capacity. I recently went to um, my, sister, uh, my sister-in-law's graduation. And one of the speakers at the graduation gave a speech. And the whole premise of the speech was, you are capable. That was the whole premise of what she said. You are capable. You are capable. And she kept saying that over and over and over again. You are capable. Well, of course, she's talking about you are capable and pursuing success in life, I suppose. And I think maybe she's over-exaggerating a little bit. You know, some people maybe are capable to do some things and some people are not capable to do other things. But when it comes to death, you are not capable you are not capable of resurrection. It's something you can just muster up. It's not something you can read resurrection for dummies and three easy steps. <laughs> you know? This is beyond your capacity. Not only is there a physical obstacle, but there is a moral obstacle. Because according to the Bible, death is not merely a physical thing. But death is a moral thing that has to do with the justice of God. We die because the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. And God's justice is more rigid than even the physical laws 
of nature. So if you're going to resurrect, you need to not only overcome the physical laws of nature, which you are not capable of doing, but you will even also need to overcome the justice of God. Why are we in the tomb? Because we deserve to be in the tomb. How are you going to get out of that one? You've got to deserve not to be there. How are you going to do that? How are you going to do that after you're dead, let alone when you're still alive? We are not capable. But the resurrection of Jesus is what Paul points to, to show that the Christian message and Christianity is not a human thing. It's not about what we are capable of, but it is what God is capable of and what God can do and has done. The resurrection of Jesus merely a historical event that we creedily affirm, like we would affirm other historical events, like Abraham Lincoln's assassination. Yes, I believe in Abraham Lincoln's assassination. Yes, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But the resurrection of Jesus is an unspeakable theological event of unspeakable theological significance. We don't only affirm that Jesus rose, but we affirm why he rose. This is what the Galatians were misunderstanding and not seeing. And when we understand why Jesus rose from the dead and what is the significance and meaning of the resurrection, then the that he arose becomes very wonderful and not just something we affirm like the assassination of Lincoln. Because Jesus atoned for our sins in his death. He rose from the dead. Justice was satisfied. Christ had became sin for us, it tells us. He became sin for us. Sin was laid upon him, and because sin was laid upon him, he died and went into the ground. But because he put away sin through his one sacrifice, because his blood was shed and it atoned for sin and satisfied the just requirements of God, he rose. And the resurrection of Christ is the spiritual big bang of the new creation. Amen? It's the spiritual big bang of the new creation. Spiritual creation that, like the physical creation, is produced by the power of God. Although we're not dealing with physical laws, we're dealing with moral laws. The old creation and the physical creation done by the power of God for the glory of God, so is the new creation through Jesus Christ done by the power of God for the glory of God. Amen? We look at the universe outside glory to God, don't we? We see the mountains as we sing in How Great Thou Art. I, I hear the brook and I feel the gentle breeze and I say, How Great Thou Art. And we But well, what about when you look at the new creation? When you look at Jesus risen from the dead, justice satisfied, life forevermore, cannot be defeated. No more death. And we're a part of that. And every other believer is a part of that. When we look at that, do we not also cry out, how great thou art. And perhaps even more pronounced than we feel the brook and see the gentle breeze or the opposite. <laughs> Not some breezes. Whereas the old creation was but it failed because it was based upon man and his righteousness. And of course that failed. The new creation is based upon Jesus Christ and the righteousness of God that he brought about through his death. And therefore, the new creation can never fail and can never fall. It lasts forever. 
Ask yourself, is your religion about resurrection or is it about renovation? Is it about what you're capable of doing or is it about what God's capable of doing? Is it about your glory? Oh, wow, you did that awesome thing. Praise you. Or is it about God's glory? Look what he did. Glory to God. It was this God, Paul says, the father of the new creation who and sent me. That's what Paul says. An apostle from man? I'm not an apostle through man. I'm not out here preaching what man is capable of doing. I'm not out here preaching the wisdom of man. I'm not out here preaching the glory of man. I'm out here preaching because I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, the God of the new creation. That's what my apostleship is about. That's what my message is about. The meaning and purpose of Paul's apostleship is inseparable to the meaning and the purpose of creation. If you attack one, attack the other. You attack Christ, you attack Paul. Paul, you attack Christ. And this is captured in Jesus' own saying in John 13, 20. Every time I read John 13, 20, I think of Paul. preached the same message. He who receives, whoever I send, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. Jesus sent Paul and to reject to reject Jesus and not only but God the Father himself. Paul's apostleship was not of man, man, to man, to man, but it was of God. So, there's another interesting thing here in this introduction that is totally uncustomary of Paul in his other introduction that shed light on the letter. Only in this reputation in Galatians is the usual greeting, grace and peace, to. You might be surprised to hear that, but if you read all of Paul's other letters, when he says, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Christ, period. And then he moves on to his next point. But only here in Galatians does he modify and add to verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. Only here does he add to the grace and peace. And here does Paul speak of the death of Christ in his introduction, in any other of his letters. Now, you'll find the the grace and peace is is customary greeting in all of the letters of the New Testament. Grace, distinction greeting. Even the Greeks would uh, say chirain, which means joy or hail. But the Christians would say grace, charis. And peace, typical Jewish, shalom, right? Shalom. So grace is the distinctively Christian greeting and peace is the typically Jewish greeting. And the Christians continued to say shalom to one another when they would greet one another. You see, Christians and Jews understand what peace is the same way. We don't stand out on the corner and say, you Jews have it all wrong about peace. The Christians and the Jews, they get what peace is together. Because Christianity comes out of the Old Testament. It understands what peace is. It understands it meaning the cessation of hostilities. It understands it, it means uh, the comfort that 
reconciliation with God, no more curse, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more pain. Jews are looking for that. Christians are also looking for that. They both wish the same thing upon each other. The whole controversy is not over what this is. The whole controversy is how do you get it? That's what the controversy is about. That's what makes Christianity and Judaism different. Not peace. It's the same thing, same goal. How do you get it? And that's what the controversy here is in the book of Galatians. The, the Galatians are saying, are hearing these Pharisees who believe in Jesus, and they're hearing a different message. No, you want salvation, you want peace, you want reconciliation, you want good to come and all that, you want the kingdom of God. It's not there's a different how than but what does Paul preach how do we get peace by God's grace and that grace is connected to the death of Christ that is how peace that is the declaration of Christianity this is the first mention of grace in Galatians grace is the prominent theme here in the letter of freedom and it's connected to death. Remember 2.21, I do not nullify or frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. It is grace that is inseparably connected to the death of Christ and the righteousness that we have through faith that makes Christianity unique. That is a unique thing about Christianity and about the gospel of Jesus. Everybody's seeking peace, and we come and say, here's how you get it. Through grace. Through Christ. The story is told of C.S. Lewis. Uh, I've never read this myself, but through second hand, but lots of people tell this story. Lewis was at a, I don't know where it was, but there was a, a bunch of theologians that were in a, or maybe they were just colleagues, professor colleagues at Oxford, and they were debating what is unique about Christianity. And they're thinking, aren't you no, you know, the world being healed later, no. Even resurrection, no. What is unique about Christianity? And they couldn't figure it out. C.S. Lewis came in the room and he says, what's all the hubbub? And they said, we're trying to figure out what's unique about Christianity. It's great. Grace is what's unique about Christianity. Grace alone is how we are saved. And grace alone is the Father, what he is and what he is like. Our hymns are full of it. Samuel Davies writes in the famous hymn, Great God of wonders, all thy ways are matchless, God-like and but the fair glories of thy grace, more godlike and unrivaled shine. You see, that's, that's a distinctively Christian idea that all of God's ways are matchless and divine, but his grace is especially majestic. Amen. It is the glory of grace, the Bible tells us, that will fill all eternity with the loudest praise. Grace means that we are saved and it is undeserved. Grace means that it is God's work, not our work. It means it is not of man, but of God, lest any man should boast. Grace means that his praises will ring for all eternity. Verse 4. who gave himself for our sins. As I said, grace and peace are inseparably connected with Christ's death. What this means is that don't ever think that God's grace is cheap and don't ever think that peace comes easy. He gave himself. 
Now, when you follow that phrase in other parts of the Bible, when you follow it in other epistles, or even when Jesus himself said, the Son of Man didn't come into the world to be served, but to serve and to give himself, you'll find that it is always referring to Jesus' death. He died for our sins. He gave himself for our sins. He describes his death as the giving of himself, his loving laying down of his life for you. And when we consider this, brothers and sisters, the giving of himself, it reveals to us what a dilemma and what a plight we were in. You can see the dilemma by the remedy, how bad it is. You can see what sin is. Considering what was given for it. He gave himself for our sins. He gave himself for our sins. Look at what he gave for sin and consider what a thing sin is. He didn't give money for our sins. Community service for our sins. You get courtroom and if they don't think it's too bad you'll not go to jail but you have to do community service no he doesn't say community service for our sins God says okay Jesus just, yeah the world is sinful but just make him do a million years of good deeds and it will be good nor did he give us laws for our sins he gave himself for our sins he gave his life for our sins he died and some statement, you have not yet considered the gravity or the weightiness of sin until you consider it in the cross. You have not yet considered the weightiness of sin, and I add, until you consider sin by the cross. Martin Luther said, sin is a thing more horrible than can be expressed. Would you agree? Can you express how bad sin is? Can you hear, string some words together and express how bad sin really is? And I add to Luther, you have, sin is a thing more hard to be expressed until or unless it is expressed by the cross. In seeing that he gave himself for it, we can get a glimpse of what it really is. And then think that sin can be put away by your own repentance by your own ritual, by you doing some community service, think little to nothing of sin. You may say, oh yeah, sin is thing. But when I sin, all I have to do is say a few prayers. All I have to do is do this little ritual. All I have to do is say that I'm sorry and God forgives me, it's all gone. You think little to nothing of sin and Christ really died for nothing if sin could be put away by you. If that's all that sin is. Ideas are human man-made ideas that make us look not bad and even good and it makes God look pathetic and nothing. But the truth of the gospel shows us and preaches the weightiness of sin. It's such a weighty thing that his love is when you consider how bad and horrible sin is, what an amazing thought it is that God gave himself for us to save us and to redeem us sinners, rebels who deserve death. Little view of sin, little view of God's love, and little glory to God. Once again, we see that it's not about God, but about man. When you take away
And I'd like to ask you this morning, do you believe that God gave himself for your sins? Do you believe that this is true of you? Who gave himself for our sins? Do you believe that he gave himself for you? Or only for others? As we sing, Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to his cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. Can you sing that? My sin. You'll never be able to say, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. You'll never be able to have a song in your heart like we sang this morning unless you believe that he died for your sin. Luther observed that men only uh, tend to only feel like Christ gave himself for them when they don't feel themselves to be sinners. You ever relate to that? You ever feel like sometimes you're, you're doing well? You ever feel like, hey, I'm having a really good week. I'm not really that bad. And then it becomes almost easier to believe that Jesus died for you. But at that time, the death of Jesus almost has no significance. So it's easy to believe, oh yeah, he died for me. Yeah, but it doesn't really mean much. But Luther observed it's when you fail, it's when you feel condemned, it's when you feel yourself to be bad, it's when you feel yourself to be a sinner that you start doubting, did he really die for me? But that's when it really counts. To believe that he gave himself for your sins, he, gave his, he died for you as a bad person, as a sinner. At that time that you're really going to appreciate the amazing thing that he did. Luther says this, and I love what he says, Therefore think yourself not to be small, may be done away with thine own works. Despair that for the greatness of them. Don't despair for the greatness of them. Either in life or death. But learn here of Paul to believe he was given not for fame counterfeit sins. He talks about how people would in his day pretend that they were sinners. They didn't really believe they were sinners but they have to pretend that they were because the Bible says Believe that Christ was given not for feigned or counterfeit sins, nor yet for small sins, but for great and huge sins. Not for one or two, but for all sin. Not for vanquished sins, meaning not only for the sins that you've overcome, but for invincible sins. He gave himself for your sins. And he gave himself for our sins that he might, the Bible says here, rescue us from the present evil age. Lightfoot says this strikes the keynote of the epistle. The gospel is a rescue and emancipation from a state of bondage. The word is not the usual word in the Bible for deliver. It's a word that's not used very often, but it means to snatch out of danger. He gave himself for our sins to snatch us out of the present evil. The same word that in Daniel chapter 3, verse 15 in the Septuagint, Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm going to throw you guys in the fire and no one's going to be able to snatch you out of my hand. And here, I think Satan thought the same thing. No one's going to be able to snatch you out of my hand. No one's going to be able to deliver you out of death and out of this present evil age. And just as Nebuchadnezzar was surprised that those men were snatched out of his hand by the power of God, so Satan must be surprised every time a sinner is rescued out of his domain and out of the very jaws of death itself by the power of God through Jesus Christ. By God's will, he did this. By God's goodwill and pleasure and delight, he sent Christ into the world to die for our sins and by his death rescue us and snatch us 
out of the danger that we were in. And Jesus says, no one can then snatch you out of God's hand because no one has the power to do that. From the present evil age, we see that Paul sees the world as it now is, as it presently is, as it was forever, but as it now is, it's evil and it's under Satan in his rule, it's under sin and condemnation, and it's under death. And it's the crucifixion that saves us from that. Paul begins and ends the letter the same way. He ends in 6.14. God forbid that I should glory, save in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. It's interesting. How does he deliver you from the world, according to the book of Galatians? He doesn't deliver you from the world by saying, you know, the world lives this way. Here's a bunch of rules. Live this way. And if you live this way, then you'll not be like the world. No, he delivers you out of the world by dying in your place. And through his death, and your faith in his death, and you being united to him in his death, you died. Here's how you're delivered from the world. You're gone. You're dead with Christ, as Paul says. I'm crucified with Christ, and it's not me who lives any longer. You can't renovate this old man. The old man has to die so that there can be a new creation based upon the righteousness of Christ and not our own. So we're delivered by, being, by dying to the present evil age and the present evil age being removed from us through his death. You know, when Paul says the present evil age here, he's not talking about the world at its worst. He's talking about the world at its best. He's not saying the world's going to improve or the world's gotten a whole lot worse these days. But the world, even at its best, is evil because it's under Satan's rule and lies and it's under condemnation because it's based on the righteousness of man. And that's the most dangerous thing. When you get attracted or impressed by this the righteousness of you start looking at this world and you start saying, wow, look how good they are. Look at all the good deeds they're doing. Oh, wow, look at this. This world is getting a better and better place. And it's not, it, it becomes the most dangerous thing because you're forgetting that this world is under Satan and it is an evil world because it is not righteous because it's based upon man's efforts and man's wisdom and man's ways and for man's glory. So do not think it's just talking about the world at its worst, but the world at its best that God delivers us from into a totally new world of grace. Of course, we hate admitting that we need rescue, don't we? This is an offensive thing. Jesus came into the world to snatch you out of its best. Because you're wrong and in trouble and you can't do it. And what's the means of rescue? A bloody cross. You've got to die with Christ. You cannot be renovated. That's the truth that men hate that's offensive. But that's the glorious gospel. Closing, I'd like to point out the last thing that is unique about the introduction. And it's only here in, this, in Paul's introductions, only this salutation of Paul's has a doxology. Chrysostom, who was a preacher in the 4th century AD, insightfully comments on this doxology. He says, This is new and unusual, for we never find men placed at the beginning of an epistle 
but a good way on. Here, however, he has it in the beginning to show that what he has already said contained a sufficient charge against the Galatians and that his argument was complete. For a manifest offense does not require an elaborate crimination. Chrysostom rightly says that this introduction contains the whole argument and the seed of the entire letter. Paul adding a little stylistic flair on the end of his introduction. Sometimes we read the doxologies that way. Right, to him be glory for every man. Okay, move on. That sounded nice. Poetic. Add a nice ring to it. This is not a add-on. This is essential to his gospel and to his letter. That's why it's here unusually. This glory to God is essential to his whole point. This is the difference between what is of men and what is of God. I'd like to comment on just three First, the word be is italicized in the New American Standard. Some translations say to him be the glory. It's a wish, it's an affirmation, it's a prayer. The Greek is actually not a wish, but an affirmation. Not him be the glory, but to whom the glory for more. It's a statement of fact. He gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the evil age according to the will of God and to the will of the Father and glory belongs to him forever. Wish, not to him be, it's it is. It is this. God will be glorified forever and ever and ever and if you don't know it, you're in total unreality. You're in delusion if you don't know that he will be glorified. Be still and know that I am God, the psalmist says. I will be exalted in all the earth. All self-glory is illusion and dangerous. Every doxology in the Bible, when it talks about to him be glory or to his is the glory, that there's an article before the word glory. The glory. To him be the glory. Not just to him be glory, but there is only one glory. There's not many glories. Not to him be glory, and to him be glory, and to him be glory, and to him be... We're just dispensing glory to all. The article means that there can only be one It's a zero-sum game like chess. One person wins and one person loses. The question you should ask is, where's the glory going to be? Where's the glory? And Paul tells us, and all the authors of the Bible tell us, the glory is with God. Because the work is God's, and it is not man's. Amen? Where's the glory? And in fact, you know that all teaching can be discerned by this one question, where's the glory? Jesus even said that in John 7, 18. Jesus says, here's how you know whether the teaching is of man or whether the teaching is of God in John 7, 18. He says, he that seeks God's glory speaks from God, but he that seeks his own glory speaks from man. Any teaching that you ever hear, just ask this, where's the glory? In this teaching, when I try, Who does the work? What way is this? What wisdom is this? What thoughts is this? What righteousness is this? And ultimately, what glory? Whose glory is this? And you can discern what is from God and what is from man. To him 
to whom the glory be forevermore. And lastly, it ends with an amen, which is an invitation to join him in affirming that the glory is God's. Just like when we pray, you know, when we pray publicly here at church, it's not supposed to be just a private affair. There's private prayer and there's public prayer. Public prayer. And when you pray, everyone should say amen with you so that we all join together in that prayer. And here's an invitation to join him in his affirmation, to whom be the glory. And the question is, do you agree? Amen. And do you say amen? So be it, may it be solid, let it be what you say. It's an invitation for all of us who read this to get what he's saying and to agree. This not-so-salutation of Paul's is what it is because it contains the essence of the letter to the Galatians. A letter of urgency by a fiery apostle. And I pray that as we take communion this morning, the Lord's Supper, as we handle the symbols of his body and his blood, and remember that he died we would see what Paul saw and what he now sees in glory. What we would see that this is God and not of man, because this is the work of God and for the glory of God. I pray that we would see what Paul saw that we ourselves would contend for it in our own day like Paul contends for it, and that we would agree with Paul and affirm that all the glory is and belongs to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your wisdom and for your desire to save sinners. And I just pray, Lord, that this morning we would consider the cross, the price that was paid for sin, and, Lord, that we would consider the weightiness of sin, that we might praise you from the depths of our souls, Lord, for your amazing grace and your amazing love. We give you all the glory because it truly does belong to you. We're just giving you what's already yours or we're just acknowledging what's already yours. Lord, thank you. Open our hearts to these things. Thank you that for all of eternity, Lord, we will be filled to the brim with joy and peace through your amazing grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.